Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. And I mean everybody. Muslims say he was a great prophet. The cultural elite of our day, those in entertainment, in the media, and academia, will say Jesus was merely a great moral teacher, a philosopher. Political activists will argue Christ was a radical revolutionary. I could go on and on. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus. That is true in our day. It has been true throughout history, and it was true when Jesus walked the earth, as we see in our gospel for today, which begins with Jesus asking his apostles, who do, the, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And his apostles basically reply, they think you're a prophet. The apostles could have added that some thought he was a miracle worker. The Pharisees, many of the Pharisees, thought he was a fraud. And some of the Romans were concerned he was a potentially dangerous rebel. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus, but our Lord isn't concerned with public opinion. For Jesus asks a second question, a more important question, a question which he asks not just to his apostles with him in Caesarea Philippi, but to everyone who has ever encountered him down through the ages. But who do you say that I am? Not what does everyone else say, but what do you say? To be blunt, this is one of, if not the most important questions in our life. Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, is so important because the stakes are so high. If Jesus is merely a great moral teacher or a prophet, well, then I've wasted my life and we're all wasting a Sunday morning. But if he is who he says he is, if he is who he says he is throughout the gospel, if he is the Christ, the Messiah, and the incarnate Son of God, if he truly died on the cross and rose from the grave, then it changes everything. Then we must change. We must make Jesus Christ the absolute foundation of our life. So who do you say that I am, Jesus asks us? What is the truth? Society will tell us we can't know the truth, not about something like this. But don't believe that lie. We can know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now, maybe you're saying, okay, great, but I'm not a theologian, a philosopher, a biblical scholar. How can I sift through all these arguments to find the truth? The rest of our gospel, pa- uh, excuse me, the rest of our gospel passage points us to the answer. For when Jesus asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? One apostle responds for the entire group. Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we have an incredibly important statement from Jesus. Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What we see in this passage is Jesus founding the church, the Catholic church, and he's giving to his church a hierarchical structure. He will in time, excuse me, in time entrust the church to his apostles, the first bishops and their successors. And in this passage, Christ is giving a particular role to Peter, the first pope, as head of the apostles. To Peter and his successors, Christ bestows the keys of, to the kingdom of heaven. Keys, of course, symbolize authority, uh, authority to govern the church, the house of God. And to Peter and his successors are given the power to bind and loose. What does that mean? 
means that Peter and his successors have the authority to absolve sins, enact disciplinary measures in the church, and to pronounce doctrinal judgments. Now, maybe you're thinking, all right, that's great, but how exactly does any of this uh, help us to know the truth about who Jesus is? Well, in this passage, what we see is that Christ is giving to Peter and his successors a particular mission uh, to teach the faith authoritatively and when needed, infallibly. Now, there's lots of misunderstanding around papal infallibility. Papal infallibility does not mean that the Pope is perfect, that he can't sin, that he knows the future, or that every word which comes out of his mouth is divinely inspired. It means none of those things. What papal infallibility does mean is this. When the Pope teaches ex cathedra, that is, when the Pope teaches as supreme pastor, um, authoritatively, on faith and morals, he cannot teach error. The Pope can't teach something wrong in terms of faith and morals when he teaches ex cathedra authoritatively on faith and morals because he's guided by the Holy Spirit. The charism of infallibility promised to the church, it's also present in the body of bishops, the successors of the apostles, uh, together with the Pope, Peter's successor, when they exercise the, the supreme magisterium. Above all, this happens in ecumenical councils. All right, the Pope is given the charism, the gift, and I would, I would dare say the responsibility of infallibility. Why? In order to preserve the church in the purity of the faith handed on by the apostles, right? Christ willed to give the church a share in his infallibility so that uh, th- these truths that he revealed, these saving truths, would be uh, preserved intact uh, and whole in every generation. Think of it this way. If God is going to reveal himself to us, if he's going to reveal truths necessary for salvation, then it only makes sense that he would give us a living, infallible authority to make sure these truths necessary for salvation are preserved whole and entire down through the ages. And I'll I'll say this. We see the need for an infallible teaching authority when we look at church history. I'm going to give two very quick examples. In a few minutes, we are all going to recite the Nicene Creed which was formulated in the year 325 AD at the First Council of Nicaea. This council was convened because in the early 4th century, prominent churchmen, namely uh, Arius, a a, a churchman named Arius, was claiming that God the Son was less than God the Father. Um, And so at the First Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, the bishops in union with the Pope authoritatively taught that the Son of God is, quote, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Consubstantial means of the same substance, homoousius, as the Father. And they also, at this council, they condemned Arius, who had been teaching that the Son of God um, came, uh, that he was from another substance than the Father, that uh, there was a time when he was not all, all kinds of teaching which was erroneous about God the Son, about, uh, about Christ. Secondly, and ironically, one of the best um, examples of why we need an infallible teaching authority comes from the historical experience of Protestantism. Now, I want to approach this topic with all gentleness because I know uh, many, uh, many, many of our Protestant brothers and sisters uh, very sincerely seek to follow our Lord. But it's a simple 
fact that when Martin Luther broke away from the church, he denied there existed any authoritative teaching office that Christ had given this authority. He denied that Christ had given an authoritative teaching office to Peter and his successors or to the bishops in union with the Pope. Thus, Martin Luther claimed that it was by scripture alone that we come to know God's revelation. The problem is some passages are ambiguous and there are multiple interpretations and it didn't take long for a group to break away from Lutheranism and uh, for that group to be divided. Without an authoritative teaching office, when a doctrinal dispute arose in Protestantism, very often it resulted in one group breaking away from another. And this continues down to today. There are estimates that today there are something like 28,000 different Protestant sects. Sects that differ, differ wildly in regards to what they believe. What these two examples show us is that without an authoritative teaching office, we're in trouble. Without an authoritative teaching office, the church would have been divided in 325 over the identity of Christ. And you know what? That would have happened on every subsequent occasion when a doctrinal dispute arose. And believe me, if you read early church history, 325 in the Arian heresy was not the only time a doctrinal dispute arose. Without an authoritative teaching office, we have seen Protestantism divide time and again over doctrinal disputes. What we ought to conclude then is this, that it was precisely so that we could know with certitude those truths necessary for salvation as distinct from human opinion that Christ bestowed the gift and responsibility of papal infallibility upon St. Peter and his successors. All right. So in our own time, as has been the case in every generation, there are these opinions out there floating about Jesus. But we don't have to sift through those opinions. We don't have to ha be a doctor of theology or a doctor of biblical studies to get at the truth of Jesus' identities. Why? Because Christ bestowed the gift and responsibility of infallibility upon Peter and his successors. And so we can answer Christ's question, but who do you say that I am, with confidence and certitude. We simply answer in unison with Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. May we answer in unison with Peter, not only with our words, but with how we live our lives.